Listen, Paul says, I tell you a mystery. Now, I love mystery stories. As a child, I read Nancy Drew. Now I read Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers, Niall Marsh, of course, Sherlock. Um, I love the whodunits, you know, solving the puzzles. But the Apostle Paul is not talking about that sort of mystery. He's talking about something amazing, something that surpasses our understanding. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. He's talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God come in its fullness, Jesus Christ on the throne of grace. This is a mystery because it defies kind of our naturalist explanations. It's, it's not reducible to the observable. It probes, if you will, the meaning of the universe, the purpose of being human. If we try to express these sort of things, uh, we might use the option of creating like a fantasy tale. For example, the um, uh, Lord of the Rings series by Tolkien or the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. In, in the last book of the series of the Chronicles of Narnia, it's called The Last Battle, Lewis explores these ideas of redemption. He looks at what heaven or the world beyond the worlds would look like. Now, the main characters in these tales are children who, during school holidays, find themselves in these uh, strange worlds where animals talk, and you've got mythic creatures like dragons and magic. And In this final story, in the last battle, there is this epic battle against those who follow Aslan, who is the good and just lion, and then those who follow the rival, Tash. There is, in this story, a big lie. The big lie is about telling part of the truth, but twisting the other part. There's this ape. This ape devises a clever plan, and he uses it to deceive the Narnians. The Narnians are the talking animals who are ruled by a human king. The ape, whose name is Shift, he is in cahoots with the human enemies called the Calamines. And he one day finds a uh, skin of a dead non-Narnian lion that has floated into Narnia. And he gets this idea. And he pulls the, or his friend, Puzzle, pulls the skin out of the water. Puzzle is a donkey. The ape makes a coat from the lion's skin to fit on Puzzle the donkey. And Puzzle has no idea what's going on. But the ape manages to take over Narnian society by claiming that Aslan, who's just this donkey, but he says Aslan is ordering these things. Aslan is ordering the talking horses to plow the fields. Aslan is ordering the cutting down of the walking trees. There are two children that enter this story, Jill and Eustace. They come, uh, they had actually been riding a railway train, and uh, just before they find themselves in Narnia, as they're sitting in the rail car, there's this terrible jolt. Jill and Eustace and uh, Trillian, the young king of Narnia, along with Jewel the unicorn, remember I told you there's a lot of fantasy in this, they face a series of disasters leading to this final battle when they square off with the ape and the calamines in front of the stable where 
the donkey um, was housed there, dressed as Aslan, right? Well, there's terrible flashes of light, terrible screams come from the stable, for it's now the home of Tash, the inexorable, the invincible. The fighting is fierce. Each side tries to throw the other into this stable door. And one by one, the children and their Narnian friends are tossed or dragged through the doorway. But what the children find is a beautiful land. It's filled with sunshine and sweet air, and they have this new vigor and this great joy, and they're delighted and they're confused. What looked like death from the outside was actually real life on the inside. Everything is like upside down and inside out. And Aslan urges them to come further up and further in. They can swim up a waterfall. They can run as fast as an eagle flies without getting tired. And they meet their long-dead friends of Narnia. As they go further up and further in, everything gets bigger and more beautiful. And eventually, they see England or England within England, the, the real England. Now, Lewis tries to capture this mystery. And Paul is trying to do the same thing in the passage that was just read. And I think Lewis is right that we can't really fully imagine what life in the kingdom of God will be like with our resurrected, glorified bodies. Although, Joe, what I have done is I have put in an order for a taller, glorified <laughs> body. So although you have prayed that we should recognize things we cannot change, <clears throat> I still hold out hope that I might be, maybe not even 5'8", I'll go with 5'6". <clears throat> so you may not completely recognize me. I may actually be taller in my glorified body. We'll have to see. We'll just have to see. And I'm not touching the width part at all. I'm just going to talk about that. When Lewis uh, was asked about the um, trying to describe what this kingdom would be like, he says, the, we can't really fully imagine what, what it will be like. Good things, even in our world today, can't, can't be reached by imagination. He says, think about the common orange. No one ever imagined it before they tasted it. So how much less heaven? Well, Paul sees himself as facing a similar task. He has to describe what is ultimately indescribable with mere words, but he has to give us direction signs. He has to help us think well about resurrection life and avoid common errors. We've all faced or will face the death of loved ones, of family members, of friends, of our colleagues. So how do we think about their death in relation to the Christian hope that is established here in Christ's death and resurrection? And how do we live now, given the sure promise that our bodies and spirits will be transformed to live eternally with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. This morning I'd like to focus on three things, the kingdom of God, the resurrected body, and victory. As we dive into our passage, please remember what Paul has been talking about and you all have been working through in 1 Corinthians 15. The Corinthians have said we don't believe in the resurrected body. 
They believe in maybe the immortal soul, but not in the resurrected body. And Paul has said to them, if Christ is not raised, you're still in your sins. And what he means by that is that we know that sin has power because of death. Death is the result of sin reigning. But if death is overturned, then sin has been defeated. And how do we know if death is overturned? Because Jesus was raised from the dead with a real, immortal body. Paul, when he um, addresses this topic, he uses the phrase, the kingdom of God. And he talks about here, in, out, in up through to uh, where we pick up the story in our verses, he talks about how the kingdom of God will come in its fullness in a moment. With the dead in Christ rising and all of us believers who are alive now, we will receive, if I can use computer talk here for a moment, the ultimate upgrade. Our mortal bodies will be upgraded to immortality because we will draw on Christ who is life itself. So let's walk through the passage. Verse 50. What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So here in this verse, Paul is restating the argument that he has made about Christ, who he calls the second Adam. He talks about how Christ, the man from heaven, will appear to establish his kingdom. The old Adam, and all of us are part of the old Adam, the old Eve, there, we're made of dust, we're mortal, we're unstable, we're weak. And because of this weakness, we're vulnerable to sin, leading to death. But the life that we have in Christ is the life that is eternal, the ultimate good, the second Adam. Those who are in Christ share this life, and they will enjoy this spiritual body. In fact, Paul says, and we all know this, we've, we've heard of this, that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. Well, Paul uses that same word, image, in verse 49, when he talks about how we will share the image of Christ, the second Adam. Paul says the same thing, uh, very similar to uh, the Philippians, that our citizenship is in heaven, and it's from there that we await a Savior who will transform our lowly bodies and grant us transformed bodies. The natural body, then, the one we inhabit now, will, in a certain sense, cease to exist. Right? And yet, in another sense, it's going to continue. There is going to be a lin that carries over, even as there is a part of me that will be cast off. The, trans the transformation will reconfigure me such that I am going to be able to live in a place with a body that is immortal. And that is, for Paul, the mystery. Paul says, listen, 
I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. So Paul gives us a peek, if you will, behind the curtain of mortality, gives us a glimpse of eternity. Three weeks ago, on May 13th, our daughter, Sarah, got married. And as she and my husband, Jim, prepared to walk down the aisle, the string quartet grew louder. Everybody stands up in anticipation. There had been an organ. They would have sounded the trumpet. Everyone strains to see the bride. Am I right? Yeah? Yeah, yeah. You can participate, even call out an amen. Um, Everyone strains to see the bride because they want to see her beauty. They want to see her joy. Paul's trying to grab that kind of moment here. The trumpet sounding, the believers raised, beholding their bridegroom, the Savior, Jesus. For brief moments, human happiness and joy can feel eternal, right? Like untethered to the contingent. A moment just pure perfection, and we wish it wouldn't end. And that's what Paul is trying to grab here with this term mystery. He goes on, For the perishable body must put on imperishability, and the mortal body must put on immortality. And when this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Why does everybody stand up and turn around to see the bride? Well, because they anticipate seeing her radiant joy, her happiness, new beginnings, and because they want to see the dress. It's a special dress. It's worn only one day. The bride is invested a lot in that one dress. Actually, her parents sometimes also have invested quite a bit in that one dress. But they say that it's worth it. (coughs) Paul puts language here of putting on clothes. When the perishable will put on immortality. The believer will be dressed with an immortal body. A body that cannot decay. Now speaking from my recent experience... The brides today have a few fittings before the wedding. Fittings can be fun, and they can be a little stressful. But they're necessary. We also are being fitted, if you will, for this great and glorious day when we, the church, the bride, meet our bridegroom. Paul will use this language of putting on, by the way, in Ephesians and Colossians, when he talks about how we live our lives today. Put on Christ. In the second part of our passage that I just read to you, Paul talks about being um, death being swallowed up in victory. And, you know, as we've already talked about, the, the Corinthians can't imagine the human body existing beyond the grave. But Paul insists that, in fact, we are raised in Christ and the bodily resurrection of Christ secures for us the confidence that sin no longer has hold on us. 
Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through Christ our Lord. In this summary, this passage here in 55 through 57, Paul puts his gospel victory song in a wider context of God's redemptive work in history. I want to mention this because I don't want you to think that Paul is just off the cuff kind of imagining something brand new that God uh, is doing, kind of coming out from left field. Paul, as a, a Jew, as a Pharisee, steeped in the Old Testament in Scripture, read the prophets, including Isaiah, who had a vision, not a complete vision, but had a vision for what God would do. And so Paul, when he cites, where, O oh, death, is your victory, where, O oh, death, is your sting, he's reflecting on a passage in Isaiah 25. And it reads like this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich foods filled with marrow, of well-aged wines, strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all people, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He, the Lord, will swallow up death forever. And then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all and the disgrace of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Lo, this is the Lord our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be, be glad and rejoice in his salvation, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. So Paul knows the prophecy of Isaiah, and he anticipates that now more fully fulfilled in Christ. Paul talks about also the sting of death being sin. And when Paul uses this word sting, the Greek word calls to mind either the bite of a poisonous snake or like a scorpion's tail that stings. The sting is sin. That's the poison. But the blood of Christ is the antidote. It's the antidote to the poison of Satan's sting. This might be a good place to remind ourselves about the truth of death, because I think there are some misconceptions that Christians carry about. I think Christians, some Christians that I've run into, think that we shouldn't grieve a dead loved one. After all, don't we have the victory in Christ? Paul does not say that we should not grieve. Paul says we should, we should not grieve as those who have no hope. He says that in 1 Thessalonians 4. And it is true that Paul in Philippians will say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This sounds really triumphant. But in this same letter to the Philippians, Paul will also say, the Lord spared me sorrow upon sorrow because he healed my good friend Epaphroditus. And if Epaphroditus had died, I would be devastated. But God spared me this tremendous grief by healing my friend. So Paul looks death straight in the eye, and he knows that it is horrible. 
and he doesn't try to sugarcoat it, and he's not triumphalistic in saying that it, it shouldn't matter and, and we should not grieve. He hates death and all of the sorrow that it creates. It is okay for believers to grieve because death is awful. But that, of course, is not the end of the story. That's not the end of things. There is a victory that comes through the graciousness of God, through the death of his son, our Lord Jesus. We do have the victory. It'd be nice to end right there, but the passage has one more line to it. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I'm glad Paul has this extra line, because it reminds us that each and every day, the testimony, our, our belief in the resurrection of the body, we can live out that belief each and every day. And we do so as we recognize our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Our trusting in God, our commitment to, to walk with those who are suffering, to testify that death is not the end. This is an encouragement to stay the course. This is an encouragement for us to run through the tape. We do have confidence in victory, It's Christ's victory. But I don't want us to be triumphalistic about it. Tolkien sounded a cautionary note. He said, I don't expect history to be anything but a long defeat. Though it contains some samples of glimpses of the final victory, but now is the time of suffering. And that's exactly what Paul says to the Philippians, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection. That joy awaits us. And we have moments now when we experience a taste of divine joy. I certainly did a couple Saturdays ago at the wedding. Our daughter didn't stop smiling the whole day. It was just pure happy, right? And her husband, Eric, I think he was in just like a wonderful fog of, of joy. That's the kind of joy, I think, that awaits us in the kingdom of God, this life eternal where we have established, immor we are immortal by the power of our Savior, whose life we now enjoy and will enjoy to the full in our new, resurrected, imperishable, glorious body. John, in the book of Revelation, speaks about the church as the bride of Christ. Wonder if he was thinking in part about the joy that the bride has. The resurrection of the body assures us that the body matters to God. We're not just minds and emotions just being carted about in an ever-aging and rickety shell that we will cast off at the end. The resurrection of our bodies helps us today to think to to understand what matters. I guess that's how I would uh, sum it up. Our our culture today, on the one hand, 
if we devalue our body, um, it's like it's like we're we're abandoning the creation that God made. If we overprivilege our body, and as our culture encourages us to seek personal inward focusing inward focused spiritual experiences, we lose sight of the king. Paul asks us to be confident that our body will be raised, but in believing that, pour ourselves out now for the sake of our community, the church, and for the world. Paul shines the spotlight on the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth that we see also in the book of Revelation. There, John, in his vision, speaks of this giant, gilded city, this new Jerusalem, a place where God is ever-present, where darkness and death and despair are all banished. The river of the water of life runs through it, and the tree of life grows on its shore. This is like the vision of Isaiah that Paul draws on in this passage. It's the fulfilling of the promises made to the ancient Israelites we see fulfilled in Jesus, our Messiah. Revelation 21.7 says this. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. And then John closes his vision with these words, a word from the bride, the church, and from the spirit, and they say, come. And let all who hear say, come. Let those who are thirsty come, and let all who wish take the free gift of the water of life. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen.